how much we adapt to the technology versus how much you know they create technology that is more adaptive to us. Those are the kind of things I think about. Big tech has advantages in budget and resources when it comes to building powerful infra, right? With CockroachDB, you can now build on top of that. The founders come from Google and basically built Open Source Spanner, but with a serverless option you can use for free at cockroachlabs.com slash stackoverflow. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk about software, technology, computer science, all the good things. I am here today with Quincy Brown, the head of programs at anitab.org. So for people who don't know, tell us, what is Anita B? Yeah, so Anita B, anitab.org is the formal name of the organization, is named after Anita Borg. And she founded the organization back in the early 80s. She was at a conference and there were very few women at the conference. They met, you know, they kind of not intentionally, but they ended up having conversation in the ladies room and decided that they would, you know, keep in touch. And, and they created a listserv called Sisters, S-Y-S-T-E-R-S. And the organization grew out of Sisters. So that Sisters is a still an online community using a mailman list server. And there are over 10,000 members of Sisters. And so out of that, you know, really became an understanding of the need for connection and community and support. And the organization has grown out of that. We or each year we organize the Grace Hopper celebration. So many people know us by the name of the conference. And that is named after Admiral Grace Hopper. And so the gatherings obviously are a great chance to meet, to network, to learn from one another, to build a support system. What else you know, do you do? It says the head of programs. So what kind of programs are you running at Anita B these days? So we have, we have a membership program. So that launched last summer. So we're coming up on a year of that. There are a lot of uh, webinars, resources. Uh, there's a discussion forum. So there's a lot of community and connections to be made over, the, over in membership. We also have um, scholarships, so we offer scholarships that include registration, I guess right now, not necessarily travel, but typically we include travel to attend for most generally students, but some faculty, some people from boot camps and you know community colleges, we provide support for them to attend and participate in our conferences. We also have uh, an apprenticeship program, so we are kind of doing that pilot now with, with Intuit. And that's that's been going incredibly well with eleven women, who are um, cool. Have, yeah, have taken some have taken some courses and are now doing kind of an internship at the at the company. Let's see what else do we do. We do work in the academic space, and so we have an academic advisory committee who we work with throughout the year in thinking through ways we can support students, faculty. Oh, we do work in the policy space. There's a big list. We do work in the policy space where we do some uh, policy and advocacy around equal pay, right, around pay equity, around workplace, um, anti-harassment, maternity leave policy, those kinds of things that really um, are needed to support women. And on your bio here on Anita B, it says you're also a professor of CS at Bowie State University. So maybe tell us a little bit about how you got into the world of software, and then we can talk a little about what it's like to teach it these days. Yeah, so I well, I, I'm not a professor anymore, but I can still talk okay. about teaching. But I, I grew up in the Bronx, New York. I was really jazzed about electrical engineering. So I started my work in this space in, as an electrical engineer. I went mm-hmm. to uh, North Carolina A&T State University 
for uh, engineering, electrical engineering, and didn't do a lot of software. I took a, an assembly course, right? So we were programming at that level, took a Fortran course. And that was all that I can remember. It's been a while. All that I can remember of a formal uh, programming uh, education. But then when I went into industry, I started at working at Texas Instruments that became uh, Raytheon in right. Dallas, Fort Worth area, and was writing um, test scripts and doing test software for hardware. So that's kind of how I got into the software side of things and uh, decided to go to, to graduate school and got my master's and PhD in computer science. And that's when I formally switched to computing and discovered that my limited electrical engineering self really didn't know where computer science was until I became a computer science major. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think Fortran and Assembly is going to give you, uh, you know, a lot of great insight about what happens at the lower level, you know, close to the metal, especially also, as you're saying, doing testing. Then you went uh, to study computer science and it kind of opened your eyes to write some of the more theoretical or algorithmic applications. And then you went into to teaching it. When you were teaching CS, were you were there things that you felt like you knew uh, based on your electrical engineering background that you could bring to that that maybe students weren't expecting, or you know, give them some sort of grounding on the EE side that can help on the CS side? It did. It did. I didn't. I taught um, C plus plus, so I wasn't teaching that. But it, it really having the the hardware experience and understanding of what happens at the chip level, like it registers, really helps when you talk about like digital and binary, right? Like what that really means, right? I would give analogies to students about, you know, listening to records, right? Old school records on the record player and hearing, the, you know, hearing the sound that way, right? Is very analog compared to have it, you know, coming through your phone or some other way that's been digitized, right? And so you can, there's a richness of sound that I think I would say is is missing um, that you just can't get when you're not on vinyl, right? And so I- Especially I mean, if you're a vinyl yeah, snob right? like me, <laughs> so able you to, can hear the difference. Yeah. Yes, um, but yeah, so it's, it's really, you know, being able to do that and then really talk about what's, you know, just what's happening under the hood, right? Just knowing that in a way that's a lot deeper when you're, when you've got the electrical engineering and the hardware piece, um, as part of your training, I think was really helpful for me in my career. And so I saw here on, on that same bio that you had a couple of areas of focus, mobile, HCI. I feel like human, you know, computer interaction is something we don't talk enough about on the podcast, but something that now as somebody who spends his days, you know, sitting in front of a computer, but also has kids, you know, in elementary school who are learning to use their tablets that I think a lot about. When you say mobile HCI, sort of, was there a specific area you focused on there? When I was doing my dissertation work, I did them on um, Palm Pilot. So this was pre-iPhone, right? This is, you know, super old school. Just was, you know, kind of looking at more of behavior modeling. So that's what I did my dissertation mm -hmm. work on. And I remember when the iPhones first came out, right? My advisor had one and was, you know, I was fascinated with, you know, the touch and gesture interaction mm -hmm. and really started to think about how... You know, the people who are designing, right, the phones, the gesture, the gesture, touch interactions, the recognizers mm -hmm. are designing them for, you know, a little bit themselves, right? The people who are kind of in their age group, right? They're their peers. And as those devices became mm -hmm. more ubiquitous, to your point, younger people started using them, right? And I started to wonder, well, right. you know, do young people, young children, are they able to have as much success with touch and mm -hmm. gesture on these devices as, say, adults, right? Because they weren't designed for, for young children. Um, and then I also started to think about what happens on the other end. Do older older people, people with mobility issues, right. are they able to, to use the devices, right, the touch and gesture interactions um, with the same rates of success and levels of success and recognition as, as younger people? 
And then I also wondered, and time will tell on this part, but, you know, will the people who, as the people who are creating these devices and the technologies age and experience some of these varied levels of abilities themselves, will they be, will they create different devices and technology? Right. That's really interesting. I actually, just before this started, um, my my Mac had downloaded the latest um, version uh, the OS overnight. And when I started it up, there was a whole panel to sort of guide you through various sort of like new features around accessibility and to like allow you to give the machine a little bit of input on like, this is, you know, where I might be right. As you said, not aligned with the center. So that was kind of cool. I'd never seen that before. It was nice to see Apple focusing on that. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll, like I said, time, time will tell about how these devices will continue to, and also I'm curious, as you know, your kind of your children is their, their growth um, and also growth with, you know, right. with technology, but how much we adapt to the technology versus how much, you know, they create technology that is more adaptive to us. So those are the kind of things I think about. So let's keep uh, that theme, but change up a little bit, you know, reading through some of your bio here, you know, it seems clear that both Anita B and then a lot of the other work that you did um, in STEM education, my brother's keeper, STEM plus initiatives, black compute, her her.org is about, uh, yeah, helping communities that may traditionally not have been at the center of the CS or software industry, or, you know, obviously we know uh, from Stack Overflow, from our user base, you know, that diversity and equity and inclusion is is something the tech industry has still a lot of work to do. So I guess, yeah, over the last five or 10 years, you know, what kind of things have you seen that have been encouraging or discouraging? And, and, you know, what are you doing, I guess, you know, within the organizations you work with now to try to find ways to bring more people uh, from these communities that were not traditionally as involved in software into that world? So over the past year, I've been, I guess, both encouraged and slightly discouraged. I feel as though I've had conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion uh, these past 12 months than, that we just didn't have before, right? There's a, a level of awareness that some people, I'll give them in the benefit of the doubt, were just did, didn't have a year ago or a year and a half ago. And so there's some discourse that's kind of out there that wasn't there before, right? Um, so that to me is encouraging because I don't think you can really address ch- issues if you don't, you know, if you can't discuss them. You know, it's really interesting. One thing that I've really been noticing that feels like it might be a a sea change is we had this, you know, year that was a shock to the system that, you know, uh, was tragic and tragically is still going on for, for people in many regions. And now as people try to, you know, sort of readjust and then get, get back to, you know, reality, get back to normal. A lot of people are saying, no, no, thanks. Like, I'm not really interested in going back to this minimum wage job where I'm putting my health on the line and I'm not getting a lot of benefits. And, you know, there's a lot of push and pull about, well, should we be taking away the benefits we gave and then people will need to go back to work. But I do think a lot of people maybe have realized working remotely, some of the options that are available to them, uh, especially in this sector, you know, there's been this incredible surge of online certifications and boot camps that can give you some really valuable skills in the span of six weeks to, you know, three months. Um, And so that's a really interesting thing thing to see that people have new on ramps to this industry and these careers um, and maybe are starting to avail themselves of that in part because everything has gone remote, right? Like it used to be you wanted to get into the world of software CS while you had to figure out how to get into one of those companies or go to a school and like do a full degree. You know, now you can get a certificate in a career around AWS or Azure or Google Cloud or Salesforce or observability in six weeks and, and have these skills that are in, in high demand. So it's kind of a cool new paradigm that maybe is emerging, not to say that it will fix all the problems right away, far from it, but 
maybe there's some new options for people to find ways into the industry, even if they don't have access to that sort of full, you know, four-year, two-year CS education. Absolutely. As, as a professor, it's hard for me to say absolutely, but I, I also do absolutely agree. I absolutely. I mean, we need all the paths, right? There's there's enough work and enough 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 challenges to go around, and so I think we need as many people engaged and putting forth their best towards um, addressing those challenges and those ideas. And that that workforce has to come from everywhere. At the end of uh, every episode, what I do is I shout out the winner of a lifeboat badge. That's somebody who came on Stack Overflow um, and answered a question that had a score of negative three and and got it up to a a high score. But we've had so many podcast guests in the last few weeks that we're all out of lifeboats. So if you're listening to this, go throw a lifeboat up. In the meantime, I will read a uh, necromancer badge. Somebody who came on Stack Overflow and answered a question that was more than 60 days old. So they came on and helped out an old question. Today, I will uh, be giving it to Stealth, awarded 22 minutes ago, adding multiple columns in MySQL with one statement. All right. If you want to know how to do it, the answer will be in the show notes. I am Ben Popper. I'm the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. You can always reach us, podcast at stackoverflow.com. And if you enjoy the show, please do leave a rating and a review on the podcast platform of your choice. It really helps. Quincy, tell people who you are, what it is you do, and uh, where you can be found on the internet if you want to be found. Yeah, so for anitab.org, you can just, it's anitab.org. You can find us online. If you go to any search engine and add the word membership, uh, you'll find our membership. You can join and become a member. And so we'd love to have to have all the listeners, um, you know, people of all, all genders and all, all uh, race, ethnicity. Everyone is welcome to be part of our membership program. And so I invite you all to do that. You can find me at um, on Twitter. Uh, not terribly often. I'm a great retweeter, not too good at uh, original content. The number of characters, it stresses me out. It stresses me out. So I'm uh, Quincy K. K. Brown is uh, where you can find me on uh, online. 